can find our passage on page 899. We're going to be looking this morning at John 12, verses 27 through 33. John 12, 27 through 33. That may look like we're stopping in the middle of a paragraph. Not really. Remember, there's no verse numbers. There are no paragraph breaks. There are no headings in the Greek that this gospel was originally written in. Plus, we have a very difficult text next week. Jesus is going to lay out for us a theology, his theology of unbelief. Many people today, even many professing Christians, refuse to believe what Jesus teaches there about unbelief. So come back next week. But I think that starting in verse 34 uh, could help us kind of get there and see the whole thing in its context. So 27 through 33 this week. The question for you to consider as we work through this text this morning, is your soul troubled today? In any way, is your soul troubled today? We will be in Psalm chapter 6 in four weeks where David cries out in verse 3, my soul is greatly troubled. Maybe your soul too is greatly troubled. If it is, we always want to be considering why. We always want to be tracing the troubles to the source and seeing why we are troubled. And if it is, well, what do you, what can you do about it? This morning, I want to commend to you the troubled soul of Christ as the only solution to your troubled soul. As we will see Jesus himself begin our text by saying, now is my soul troubled. It's a hugely significant statement. This is our fifth week in John chapter 12, one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. And we've been considering this chapter so far in terms of kingship. We have seen the anointing and the worshiping of the king. We have seen the coming of the king. We've considered the disciples of the king. It's providential that we've been considering the king while much of the world has had kingship on their minds. For the first time in over 70 years, Last week, Britons proclaimed the words, God save the king. Queen Elizabeth's funeral is tomorrow, 6 a.m. Eastern, if you want to wake up early to, to watch it live. But many expect it to be the most watched television broadcast ever. Someone estimated upwards of 4 billion people. I don't know how they get that number, but that, that's huge. I obviously did not know her, and only God can know the heart, and I am the most Skeptical of celebrity conversions. Conway does not know Jesus. Uh, Justin Bieber does not know Jesus. I'm skeptical of all those things. It sure seems like Queen Elizabeth knew and loved Jesus. She talked much about the grace of Christ who serves and saves. She claimed that the healing of the paralytic in John 5 was her favorite story in the Bible. You talked with people who knew her and it seemed that she had a real and living and vibrant faith. I think it's pretty neat. I think that this long-reigning earthly queen is in the presence of her eternally reigning heavenly king right now. But here, now, Charles is king. Charles III, already declared king, but not yet crowned king. His coronation is still to come, and it will be a grand and glorious affair. It will be pomp and circumstance. It will be spectacle. A new king is being Crowned. And he has been waiting for this moment his whole life. I think he's 73, the oldest new monarch ever crowned in England. 
Finally, Charles's moment of glory. And I doubt that his soul is very much troubled. But Christ, in our passage, Christ the King, is approaching his coronation, and yet his soul is very much troubled. The Christ, one, one, who was God, one, three, through whom all things were made. The Christ who has turned water to wine, who has boldly cleared the temple, who has confronted Nicodemus, who has loved the woman at the well, who has healed the lame, proclaimed himself the giver of life, the judge of the world, who has fed 5,000, walked on water, declared himself the bread of life, the light of the world, I am giving sight to the blind, declaring himself the good shepherd, the resurrection and the life, who has just raised Lazarus to life. All of that, this Christ, perfect power, absolute authority, God become flesh, his soul is troubled. What could possibly trouble the soul of this man? Well, it's the one thing that should trouble our souls, but so often does not. Jesus has just said in verse 23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And then he goes on to talk about his death in the very next verse. Three times in our verse 28, he will say, glorify, glorify, glorify. And then he goes directly on to talk about his death. And so we are talking about death and glory. Those two things don't really go together in our minds. They do in Christ's. As we're going to see that death is the way to glory. This is going to be glory through death. But still, if glory is the goal and the outcome, why the so troubled soul? And how can that help your often so troubled soul? Let's see. Three points. I started with six. I pared it down to three. You're welcome. We only have three. I want us to start with the glory of God in general. We have to establish first this base, basic idea, all to the glory of God. None of this will make sense if we don't start there. Then I want us to see specifically that glory of God in Christ's death. And then Christ is going to tell us four things in just two verses that his death does. And so I want to fold all of those together into verse into point three and see the glory of God in what Christ's death does. A few of us this week read a Spurgeon sermon and in the middle of it. He says, surely we make too little of our Redeemer's death. Amen. Let us seek to make much of our Redeemer's death today and let us seek to see God's glory in it and find our good in it. So let me read the text for you, death and glory. John 12, we're picking up in verse 27. He's just paraded in. The Greeks have come to him. He's taught about what it means to follow him. This is what comes next. John 12, 27, sorry, stopping in verse 33. Pay attention. This is what God wants to say to you today. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. 
Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Let's stop there. Let's pause. Let's go to the God of this word and ask him to help us in this time. Let's, let's pray. Father, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe that your spirit is very much active. I believe that your spirit is um, constantly on the move, constantly working. And he tells us, Jesus tells us very clearly in the chapters to come that that spirit is working to magnify him. To draw all attention and all glory to Christ. To teach us of that Christ and to point us to him. And so this word that is so clearly about Jesus Christ, we ask that your spirit would take that word. Father, make our hearts live to that word. Help us to see Christ, help us to see glory. Father, help us to be drawn to Jesus through what we see and hear of him uh, through these words. Father, we desperately need your help. We are entirely dependent upon you to accomplish anything of value in this time. So please help the preaching of your word. Help the hearing of your word. Father, we want to see glory and we want to find our good in your glory. We want to stop seeking our own glory and living for ourselves, and see that life is found in you. So, Father, please help us. Please now do what we cannot do. Please work through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Point number one, all to the glory of God. Again, nothing will make sense if we don't first establish this first point. This ultimate and always purpose of God. We pick up that purpose word from the end of verse 27, and then we pick up the glory in verse 28. Eight. And I'm obviously taking the wording of this point from 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Right? That's, that's our point. That's one of those verses that we should all have memorized. This is one of those basic fundamental truths at the very core of the Christian life. This is what it means to be a Christian. Remember back for a moment to our previous text. We spent two weeks in verses 20 through 27 talking about discipleship. And we saw that fundamentally, most basically, a disciple is a follower. A disciple follows Jesus. A disciple believes what Jesus says and does what Jesus does. Well, look at what Jesus says and does in verse 28. We're going to come back to verse 27 and our next point. I want us to focus first and foremost on glory because this is where Jesus focuses first and foremost. Verse 28, he says, Father, glorify your name. Do you have glory fatigue yet? We've been talking a lot about glory lately. But that's because Jesus has been talking a lot about it lately. And because that's the very reason that we exist. This is why we are here. This is what life is always and entirely about the glory of of God. First and foundational question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. I think there are a few things that more people know and that less people do. We know what this says, we don't know how to do it. What is the chief end of man? An end is a purpose, a goal, or an aim. A chief end is the main first 
primary purpose, goal, or aim. So the question is asking, what is your purpose? Why are you here? What is the reason for your very existence? And the catechism answers, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And according to the scriptures, that's your purpose. That's why you exist. That's what life is all about. And this starts to make a little more sense of what we've been talking about these last two sermons. That to follow Jesus, we have to deny ourselves, take up our cross, die to self. And why is that? Why is that required for following Christ? Well, it's because contra, the main message of the world, life is not all about you. You do not exist for your own pleasure. You do not find yourself within yourself. You do not find identity, meaning, purpose, goodness, pleasure, joy within yourself. You find it in the Lord. The Lord who is life and joy. The creator and sustainer of your very self. And so remember, sin in this sense is when we believe and live as if our chief end is to glorify ourself and to enjoy ourself forever. Right? Sin is to reject him, to turn away from him, and then love and live for self. Remember, this is the main thing that the world is telling you to do. We little understand how contrary our culture and what the world is telling us Christianity actually is. We want to take Christianity and blend it together with the world and with the culture and have both of these things. They're fundamentally opposed to one another. This one's saying this, this one's saying this, and the two cannot go together. The world says, love yourself, live for yourself, seek your own glory. But this is a problem because it puts us out of line with reality. This is us working against the grain of the universe, the orientation of all that exists. Our chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever because God's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And this is right and good and true because He is not only the source and the center of all that exists. In the beginning, God created everything. In Him we live and move and have our being in Christ, all things hold together. But he's also the perfect person. He's perfect in holiness. He is utterly other and transcendent. He's perfect in purity and goodness, perfect in beauty. Everything should then revolve around him, the all-glorious one deserving all things being done to his glory. The girls really started to get into basketball this year during Carolina's run through the NCAA tournament. We are preseason number one. Go Heels. Lately, we have been uh, going to the playground some mornings, and I've been running them through some basketball drills, especially Emma. She's pretty good. She's pretty good. She's 10 years old, though. She's brand new to basketball. She's still learning to dribble, practicing free throws, layup drills, because I'm trying to coach her and and run through those things. And then sometimes I show her the things and give her the example. So she, new to all this, looks at me in comparison and thinks, wow, he's, he's pretty good at basketball, right? Plus, there's no one out there that's any good. I've never seen a single good basketball player at Windmuller. And often it's just she and I on the court, and the girls are going around on the playground with their little scooters and falling and getting hurt. Sometimes maybe there's like this one 70-year-old guy over here on the court who can barely get the ball to the rim, 
So there's 10-year-old Emma. There's 70-year-old guy just out having some fun. Good for him that he's out there shooting basketball. That's pretty neat. And there's me. So I look glorious and great in comparison to them. I am basketball glory on that court. And so she rightly looks to me and thinks, man, he's pretty good. I'm not. I am not. I'm, I'm honestly not good at basketball. I didn't make the middle school team. I got cut from my middle school team. I didn't even waste my time trying out for high school. Too short, too slow, no hops. So again, I'm not very good. So say, here's our court. I'm the glory of this court. I get say Jordan, right? Michael Jordan, the GOAT, the greatest of all time. LeBron James, the far distant, maybe second greatest. Steph Curry, the greatest shooter of all time. Say they randomly decide to stroll out onto the basketball court. One day at Windmuller Playground. Look at what happens. All of a sudden, all attention goes to them. All the glory rightly now goes to them. Emma would now say, wait, wait. And she would see me for what I truly am in comparison to them. And it is right that their far superior greatness be recognized and looked at and celebrated and praised everyone would and should surround them and enjoy them and give all attention to them playing basketball because they are the greatest who have ever done it and they will pay no attention to me. In an infinitely superior way, God as the only perfect person, infinitely, eternally, unimaginably superior to every single one of us in every way, rightly deserves all recognition, attention, celebration, and praise revolving around him. Who he is demands that all be done to the glory of God. This is the purpose of reality. This is your purpose. You exist to glorify God. Which again, we know means not that we in any way make God more glorious. That's impossible. He's perfect. We add nothing to him. For us to glorify him means that we recognize, we acknowledge, and then in our lives we then show him, display, demonstrate him as glorious. It's to declare and show forth the glory of the all-glorious God. And as 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, we are to do that, whatever we do, all to the glory of God. To live our entire lives in light of who He is and what He has done. And to do so for the purpose of showing Him to be great and glorious. Again, not just this. Yeah, I'm so glad that you're here. Great. It's good. We, this is very important. But it's not just Sunday morning. It's not just worship, like the music, the worship, which was excellent today. The the whole of our lives is meant to be worship lived to His glory. We so compartmentalize this this Christian Jesus thing sometimes for our Sunday mornings, and then we have the rest of our life. We're trying to bleed those things together and say, this is about all of this. Do you work to the glory of God? Do you rest to the glory of God? Do you recreate and exercise to the glory of God? Do you social media to the glory of God? That might be impossible. Do you TV? It's a joke. It's a joke. 
Do you TV and entertainment to the glory of God? Do you relationships to the glory of God? Do you eat to the glory of God? It's just what the verse says. We are to do whatever we do to the glory of God. Yeah, so we should always, I'm always kind of asking myself, always stepping back and analyzing my heart and, and what I'm doing and why. We should always be asking, whose glory? Whose glory here? Right? Mine or his? What am I really about? Is it him? He's that great and good. He's so other, so glorious, so beyond how we tend to conceive of him that everything exists ultimately exists to show forth that glory in some way. He's the sun and the center. To live in line with our design, to carry out our purpose and find our good, we are to do all to the glory of God. And that is exactly what the only perfect man, the only man to ever live perfectly, that the Christ that we claim to follow, that's exactly what he himself does. Remember, discipleship, is following. What does Jesus do? Verse 28 again. Father, glorify your name. And whatever is about to happen, whatever we're about to talk about, whatever it is, Father, through this thing, shine forth, show forth your goodness and greatness through me. Glorify your name. All to the glory of God. Yeah, we, that, that, Just that one fact right there would fundamentally change how we live our lives. If we could see that he is working all things together for his glory and that your very good is bound up in that. So here Christ recognized that and says, Father, glorify your name. But context. Why does Jesus say that right now when he does? Let's move to point number two. Now let's focus on the glory of God in Christ's death. And here, here's the main point of the text. Look first back up at verse 23. Again, let's see this up there as well. Christ the King has entered in. Remember the triumphal entry. Misunderstood, misnamed. Uh, the people don't see him for who he is. He is a different kind of king. He is an unexpected kind of king. They want conquering king. Powerful, political, mighty, military king. Jesus is not and will not be what they want. And that is not why he has come. Then in verse 28, the world, the Greeks, this will be important for verse 32. They come and they say, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Side note, remember our first point two sermons ago, disciples desire the king. Again, always examining our hearts. Do we have a heart and a desire and a longing for Jesus? Is there a true love and growing affection for his person. For me, for so long, Jesus was nothing more than, than an idea, a concept, an abstraction. But he's a person. And he's the person. Do we know and love and relate to him as such? But for now, 23, look at Jesus' response again to their desire. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And then in verse 24, he takes that metaphor of the grain of wheat to begin talking about his death. Remember, throughout John, we've repeatedly seen, his hour had not yet come. My hour has not yet come. Now it has. What hour? Look ahead at 13.1 again. Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world. 
Right, so the hour is his time to depart. The hour is his time to die. Verse 27, now is my soul troubled. Stop. Again, we're back to the beginning. Why? Why this Christ, perfect in power, total control? Why is his soul troubled? How is that possible? You're probably thinking that's a dumb question because he's going to die. Death is troubling. Amen. We should be far more troubled by the reality and inevitability of death than we are. Death is the king of terrors. Our culture does not know what to do with death. We hide it away. We distract ourselves from it and only end up distracting ourselves to death. But we have countless examples of individuals facing death with great confidence and courage and, and calmness. Socrates, calmly and stoically, conversing with his friends as he drinks his, his poison hemlock. Countless martyrs for Christ faced torturous deaths with calm repose. Uh, Hugh Latimer, 1555, uh, one of what's known as the Oxford Martyrs, who was burned alive by Bloody Mary, a very different kind of queen than Elizabeth. But it was Latimer, surrounded by flames, who says in the midst of those flames to his fellow martyr, Nicholas Ridley, play the man, Master Ridley. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. Play the man. They're the candle. They're on fire. They're literally burning. Play the man. God's going to do something with this. The third Oxford martyr was Thomas Cranmer. They died about six months earlier. Initially, Cranmer recants his Protestant Reformation faith under pressure from the queen. He, he signs the confession of his recantation with his own right hand. But then, he climbs up into the pulpit. They had big, up, high pulpits. You can go see this pulpit uh, today. In that pulpit, he publicly recants his recantation. He's ripped from the pulpit, taken to the exact same spot where Latimer and Ridley were burned, and he calmly first holds that right hand into the flames, calling it his unworthy hand, and then calmly says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. You know, we could, just, we could multiply example after example of Christian martyrs' calm courage in the face of death over and over and over again. And yet here's Jesus, troubled. Trouble doesn't quite convey the, the weight of the word in the Greek. John doesn't convey, doesn't record for us Gethsemane. That's only a few nights from now. This is the, the Johannine Gethsemane. This is evidence that this trouble, this soul trouble, was constantly confronting Christ. He was always aware of what was coming, and yet still marching resolutely toward it. And Mark's account of this helps us understand a little bit more of the what and the why of the trouble. If you want to look at it, it's in Mark 14. Write down the page number, just a, a few pages to your left. Mark 14. This is Gethsemane. The betrayal is coming. Trials, crucifixion, only a few hours away. Remember, this is Jesus. This is the God-man. Perfect in power, in total control, and yet totally troubled. What could trouble this man? Mark 14, 33. 
tells us that Jesus began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And now look at verse 34. Here Jesus says, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Verse 36. Jesus prays, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but you, what you will. It's the cup. The cup is why the Christ is so troubled. And if we knew our Old Testaments better, we would be troubled by the cup. Psalm 75, verse 8 says, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Catch that, that it's the wicked who will drain the cup. We actually just read about the cup in Isaiah chapter 51, in verse 17. God says, wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. The cup represents the wrath of God, the wrath of God on the wickedness of man. The cup of staggering. Christ is here confronted with that cup And Christ is staggered. This is why he has come. This is what he has come to do. And so back to John 12, he goes on to say in verse 27, And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. And he has come to die. John has proclaimed him from the beginning, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And to take away that sin, he had to take on that sin. And in taking on that sin, he's taking on the wrath of God for that sin. As we saw on Thursday, we saw this from Romans 1. The all-glorious but entirely rejected God Again, the book starts off by telling us that his wrath is rightly revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, all sin. We just got it. We've got to understand this. This is just basic stuff. God is right to hate sin. Justice is to be opposed to and against that which is evil. The problem is that you are evil and that I am evil. All have sinned. And the wages of sin is death. Spiritual death. Eternal death. Full and final separation from the God uh, in all His goodness and life. Unending and eternal submission to the judgment of the God of perfect holiness and justice. That our minds cannot comprehend the severity of the crimes committed against the infinite and eternal God. The perfectly good God of love. And think of the worst injustice that you've ever experienced, the worst injustice that you've ever witnessed or are aware of. Think of that anger that you felt, uh, how it made your blood, this is not right, this is not fair, I should not be, she should not be treated in such a way. You take all of it, the worst of it, all of it pales, pales in comparison 
throughout how we have treated the all-glorious creator and sustainer and goal and good of our lives. Clear revelation of perfect glory and goodness and grace. Nah. No. No, thank you. I'm unimpressed. God. Don't really care. God, you're not good. God, you're not even worth my time and attention. I'm all right. I'm good. I'll give myself my time and my attention. You know, when we start to understand who he is, it's, it's insanity. It's insanity. And it's what we've all done with and to the all-glorious God. And justice, the punishment for sin against the infinite and eternal God, will be infinite and eternal. This is the horror of hell. This is what our sin justly deserves. And this is what this Christ has come to take in our place. Now is my soul troubled. And now I hope that trouble makes a little more sense. No one ever suffered like this. Thousands upon thousands of people were strung up on crosses by the Romans. Many of them were up there for days far longer than Jesus. It's this. It's the spiritual suffering. It is his soul taking on our sin and somehow in a moment suffering the eternity of punishment that the sin of every single person for whom he was dying deserved. That's what troubles him. That weight. The reality and the awareness of the coming unimaginably huge wrath of God about to be unleashed entirely upon him in a flood. That's what staggers him. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. He was stricken, smitten, afflicted by God. It was the will, the pleasure in a sense of the Lord to crush him. That's what the Christ is facing. Again, we make far too little of our Redeemer's death. We are so consumed with trite and trivial things and so little concerned with weighty and eternal things. None of us fully understand the cross and the cost of our salvation. And we prove that day after day as we continue to be drawn back to sin and self as we are so often bored with the things of the Lord. This Lord who has done this to save and to spare our souls. That's nice. This is it. This is, this is everything. And this is the only answer to your troubled soul. It is only Christ's troubled soul for you. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus, the King, the all-glorious God of life becomes sin for our sake, for me and for you. Those, those things that are in the recesses in the back of your mind that you've done that nobody else knows about, are those, those darkest things in our past that we don't even want to consider? He, in a sense, became those things and did those things as you to take on your sin, to take on what you deserved for those horrible things that we have all done. God himself is doing that. 
Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us. You know, try to wrap your, the God of life, the, the all-blessed God becomes a curse for us. Cursed is what you were. Cursed is what Christ became. That we might be redeemed and restored to relationship with God. And again, it, it, it's here. It's here that we see the glory of God shining forth most clearly and compellingly. This is the revelation of who God is. Yes, He's holy and just. Yes, justice demands that evil be dealt with and crimes punished. What a God then that makes a way, the only way, to maintain and satisfy His justice and in the exact same moment demonstrate His great mercy to His sinful people in saving them through the substitution of His Son. And at such cost. Infinitely unimaginable cost. The glory of God is revealed in the cost that He would pay and the lengths that He would go to save His people from their sins. Jesus is going to tell His disciples in chapter 14, verse 1, let not your hearts be troubled. But that's only possible because here in 1227, He says, my soul is troubled as He faces the coming of God's infinite wrath for your sin and for mine. And so again, I ask you, is your soul troubled today? Just as important, why? What is it that troubles your soul? Honestly. If you're here this morning and you're not a believer, all this is kind of weird and, and strange and new to you. Are you ever troubled by your sinfulness? That guilt that we just can't quite seem to get rid of. Right? That awareness that we all have that we don't stack up and that we all fall short. That guilt's there. You know it. What are you trying to do about it? Christ claims that He is the only thing that can be done about it as He comes to take on the sin and take on the guilt and in so doing, take it away. Christian, are you ever troubled by your indwelling and ongoing sin? Are you ever troubled by your coldness and apathy toward the Lord of life who gave that life for you? Or do you tend to be more troubled by money stuff, work stuff, relationship stuff, comfort and ease stuff? You know, sometimes I get upset when I get like interrupted in my reading. Who cares? It's so stupid. Uh, who cares? We get so troubled by really dumb things. When what if this is the thing? And what if this has been taken care of and wiped away? Why do we care so much about all these other dumb little things? I think that person looked at me in kind of a mean way. Like I'm offended. Who cares? God. You had offended Him. And Christ has come to take away the offense and declare you righteous and to count you as His child. Eternity really puts things in perspective. Grace, mercy, glory puts things in perspective. Christian, are we ever troubled by our indwelling sin and our coldness towards the things of the Lord? Kids, children, there's a couple of children in here, my children, other children. What troubles you? Is it your brothers or sisters? Maybe it's your parents. 
Maybe it's how much school you have to do. Maybe it's how little video games you get to play. Again, what really troubles you? Kids, you are here, and we want you in here in part because you're no different than the grown-ups around you in this sense. You, like us, are sinners. And that sin separates you from God. Children, have you been troubled by that fact? Are you aware of what sin is? Do you know what it means to repent of that sin and trust in Jesus to forgive you? Talk to your parents about it. We would all of us be wise to be a little bit more troubled by what troubles Jesus Christ. And what troubles him is sin and death. In a unique way, of course, because only he can take it on and suffer for it in our place. But if we don't turn to him in faith, then we will suffer for it. We will experience something of what he suffered. And we will experience it for eternity in hell. Preaching should consist to some degree in pleading. I am pleading with you and I am pleading with myself to begin to care a little bit more about that which most matters. And a little bit less about that which does not matter at all. Consider Christ's troubled soul and see the glory of God revealed most clearly in Christ's death to save our troubled souls. And point number three, see the glory of God in what Christ's death does. Back to the text. Look back at verse 28. Christ is very much troubled. He knows what's coming. Christ still does all to the glory of God. Father, glorify your name. But then look at what happens. This is special. This is unique. I don't have all this sorted out. But I've argued before that when you hear God and you see God in the Old Testament, you are generally hearing and seeing the Son of God. You're seeing the pre-incarnate Christ. And again, that idea comes largely from John 1 verse 18 which says, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, that's Jesus, the Son, He has made Him known. So when God is being made known, being seen and heard, it's generally the Son of God. Except for here. This this can't be the Son of God. And this only happens three times in the Gospels. This cannot be the Son speaking. Look at 28, the rest of it. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The voice, the words of the Father himself, which are quite a rare occurrence, I think. The only other two times, towards the beginning of Jesus' ministry, Matthew three seventeen, the baptism, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And toward the end of his ministry, Matthew 17, 5, the transfiguration. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. I think that what's going on here is probably far more important uh, than I understand. But for now, simply note that in potentially the only three times we hear the Father speak, we hear Him speak of the Son. We hear of His delight in the Son. We hear of His approval and encouragement of the Son, of His glory manifested through the Son. The perfect God most delights in His perfect Son. Again, it is wise to delight in what the person, perfect person most delights in. This is our beloved Christ. 
May we be well pleased with him as the Father is. And so the Father affirms that he already has glorified his name. That just name is just himself. Right? The name of God is God. And so by that have glorified, he's probably referencing the, the whole course of Christ's life up until this point. All of it has been done, all to the glory of God. Jesus is the only person who perfectly kept God's good law and perfectly glorified God in all that he did. And God will glorify it again in the Christ, in the death of Christ. So it seems that the first part's talking about the life that has already happened, and the second part is happening, is referencing the death that is to come. Life glorifies him, and I will glorify it again in the death of my son. So God is saying, here's who I am. Here's where my greatness is on the clearest display. See who I am in Christ. See my glory in my son's death. And see it in what that death does. Jesus gives us four things. We'll do them very quickly. We've kind of already somewhat touched on them, but let me at least draw your attention to them and briefly touch on them. Look at verse 31. Jesus says, Now is the judgment of this world. Number one, the first thing that Christ's death does is Christ's death judges the world. Back up, and you see this already in verse 29. God himself has just thundered from the heavens. God's reality-creating word has been spoken. I'm not a particularly clear communicator all the time. I'm sorry. I'm working on it. The perfect God communicates perfectly and clearly. How does the world respond to that word? Verse 29. Uh, the crowd that stood there and heard it said that uh, it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Calvin, humorously, not humorously, but Calvin writes on this verse, it was a monstrous thing that the multitude was so obtuse to so plain a miracle. Some were deaf, deaf, heard only a sound. Others were less dull, but detracted greatly from the majesty of God by pretending its author an angel. But the same thing is common today. God speaks plainly enough in the gospel in which there is also displayed a power and energy of the Spirit which should shake heaven and earth. But many are as cold towards the teaching as if it came only from a mortal man. And others think God's word to be a barbarous stammering as if it were nothing but trouble. Nothing but thunder. Sorry, can't read. See the severity and the stupidity of sin here in verse 29. God, the God who speaks, the God who reveals, the God who communicates perfectly. He speaks, and he speaks about the most important thing, the most beautiful, precious thing, the glory of his Son. They can't even comprehend it. They're deaf to the clearest thing, blind to the most beautiful thing. And we likewise can sit under the preaching and proclamation of God's glorious word of life and be thinking only about lunch. And be thinking only about the football game. This is man in his sin. This is why Christ's death judges the world. For this is giving a hint of what the world is. The perfectly holy and righteous one has come and the world hates him. 
Because his perfection exposes our perversity. Remember back in chapter 7, verse 7, Jesus says, The world hates me. Listen, do not, be, do not expect to be loved by what Jesus says hates him, if you want to be a follower of Jesus. The world hates me because I testify about it, that its works are evil. 319. We generally only read verse 16 of John chapter 3. That's it. We just stop there. Keep reading. 319. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. And listen, those, those works are exposed no more clearly than they are at the cross. In the rejection of God's Son, the world rejects God Himself. In the murder of God's Son... Man's sin is exposed fully and finally for what it truly is. Our attempt to un-God God, to dethrone God, to kill God. And if you want to understand the world, to see it for what it really is, look at the cross. Look at how the world responded to and treated the Christ, the Creator and Savior of that world. God's glory is revealed in God's judgment of the world as we see that world for what it is most clearly at the cross. We're really trying to to seek to understand the horrific nature of sin, making the case that it's, it's no mere mistake, no breaking of some arbitrary rule, no minor fault, but it is deicide. It is God murder. And here we see that very clearly in this regicide, king Murder, as that king is up there on the cross, killed by his subjects. And God will judge all those who judge his son as entirely worthless and unworthy and kill his son. Judgment is simply divine decision. The Greek word literally just means to distinguish, to to make a distinction. It means to, to select or to separate out. And if you've been following along with our church scripture reading, I encourage you to be reading the Psalms. Psalm 3 is coming this week. But if you've been reading Psalm 1 and 2, you can't help but notice how prevalent this theme is in these Psalms. The very first word is blessed. That's the thing that we all want. But then immediately the psalmist starts to draw this distinction. You have the righteous and the wicked. Verse 6, the Lord knows the way of the righteous but the way of the wicked will perish. And then you get to Psalm 2 about God's sovereignty executed through God's king. This king. Francesca and I were talking about it Friday. Psalm 2 is pretty intense. If you really pay attention to it and think about it. The nations are raging. People are plotting. They're setting themselves against God and his king, the Christ, which is foolishness. It's folly. And what's God's response? It's terrifying. God laughs. It's only three times. You know that God laughs? It's only three times in the Bible that we're told that God laughs. All in the Psalms. And it's always a laugh of mocking derision against the foolishness of the wickedness that seeks to stand against Him. God, the King, does not take such foolish wickedness 
lightly. And so we just read it in Psalm 2, verse 9. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Be wise, be warned, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. The only refuge from the wrath of God is the refuge in the Son of God, who is the conquering King, but who comes first in our passage as the suffering and dying and saving King. This is the same King in Psalm 2 and John 12. Take refuge in Him. Psalm 2 is a gracious warning. This is what will happen if you persist in your rebellion. So repent, return, find refuge in the King. Rejoice in Him. And live. But if we refuse, judgment is all that remains for us. Christ's death judges the world. See the world and sin for what it truly is in the murder of God's Son. Number two, Christ's death defeats Satan. Look back at verse 28. God go, Jesus goes on to say, Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Sin, in its very nature, desires to kill God. And we see that as the world crucifies the Christ. Well, that, that's, that's been the nature of sin all the way from the beginning, going all the way back to its inception. Back in chapter 8, verse 44, Jesus has said, You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. Murder and lies. That's what's most associated with Satan. He is the opposite of truth and the opposite of life. And he is, or he was, the ruler of the world. But now, Jesus tells us, at the cross, cast out. The men were in 1 John 3 yesterday. We should pay more attention to how strongly the scriptures speak of what Christ's cross does to Satan. 1 John 3.8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Hebrews 2.14, Jesus took on flesh and blood that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. And that happens at the cross. It is our sin and the death that it deserves, the guilt and condemnation from the, comes from that sin. That's what gives Satan his power. In Christ, the sin and the death are dealt with and done away with, thus no condemnation, no guilt, no power for Satan over God's people. He is a defeated foe. We're about to proclaim this in song as we close. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fail him. Christ's death defeats Satan. And that's huge. The prince of darkness. Can you imagine this wonderful world? God's good creation. Isn't there still so much lingering beauty in this world? The beach and go out in the fall and see the leaves and get into the mountains. So much beauty. Can you imagine that God's creation? No death. No lies. No evil. What beauty. There will be what goodness, what joy we will find in God's good word, world purified from all that ruins it. The cross guarantees it. And so the cross and its defeat of Satan glorifies God and his power in his goodness. Number three, 
Christ's death saves his people. We've already talked about it, so I'll have to rehearse this again. At the end of verse 32, he simply says, I will draw all people to myself. We know that that can't mean he will save everyone. The whole next section is about the overwhelming unbelief of the people. Verse 37, they still did not believe in him. And not believing is death and judgment. John 3.18 again. Whoever does not believe is condemned already. And so we understand that all people in its context. We understand it in light of verse 20 and the Greeks. In light of verse 19 and the world going after Christ. He has not just come for Israel. He has not just come for the Jews. He is saving a people for himself. Not from one nation, but from all the nations. All kinds of people. Drawing equals saving. He is the Lord of life. To be drawn to the Lord of life thus is to live. And the obvious implication is that apart from Him, we're dead. That's the condition of the world. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. And it is only Christ, the Lord of life, giving up His life by which we may live. And it is His glory. It is His love displayed so clearly on that cross that draws people to Him. Church, what love is this? Look to Him and live. See His glory displayed in His love. See His love displayed in His death for you and for your sin. That's true glory. And that's the fourth thing Christ's death does, obviously. But let's end with this. Christ's death glorifies Christ. That's number four. Christ's death glorifies Christ. Look at the beginning of verse 32. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth. It's such a perfect play on words. That's a precious paradox. A delightful double meaning. To be lifted up is to be exalted. It's to be glorified. Look at Him up there. See Him in all His greatness. See Him in in His glory. But to be lifted up in the context of John is also to be crucified. Literally. Lifted up off of the ground. Nailed naked to a tree. Look at Him up there. See Him. See His glory there. This is His coronation. But it is coronation through crucifixion. And this is why He is both troubled and yet determined. This is why it is both death and glory. It's glory through death. It's His glory, but it is also our good bound up in His glory. And this is why His troubled soul is the greatest and only comfort and solution to your troubled soul. He suffered spiritually, in a sense, eternally. He suffered death so that you would never have to. And if by the grace of God we can see that, Again, all of our troubles, there's so many troubles. Let's not minimize that. But all of them pale in comparison to this. They are but light and momentary, preparing us for the eternal weight of glory purchased and guaranteed for us by Christ our King, our substitutionary, suffering, dying, saving King. Sin is the seeking of self. All our problems are rooted in sin. Our self-obsession our desire for self-glory. The solution is Christ's obsession. The solution is a desire for Christ's glory. Eyes off of you. Eyes on Him. Life not about you. Life about Him.
We must make much more of our Redeemer's death. We must seek to remove it only from Sunday morning, the spiritual compartment of our lives, and shift it to the very center of our whole lives. And it's as we see his glory revealed so clearly in his death on the cross that we are more and more able and desirous to do all things to the glory of God. This God, the God of John 12, the all-powerful, all-glorious God who chooses to reveal himself and that glory to us in our salvation from our sin through the death of his son. What a God. What glory. Christ is high and lifted up. He is drawing his people to himself. Look to him, see him, come to him, and live. And you will find much peace for your troubled soul. If you would bow with me, let's close this time with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Father, we could talk for hours and hours about your glory, about your Christ, about his cross. Father, we haven't even begun to scratch the surface. We haven't even begun to understand the greatness of what it is that you have done for us in Jesus. So we ask for you to give us eyes to see. We ask that you would increasingly grow within us a great affection for Christ that dries out all the other uh, silly competing affections for the things of this world. Father, forgive us for how we have sought our own glory this week. Forgive us for how we will go on to seek our own glory this week. Father, we are so stubborn and slow to understand. Please help us. We thank you that you are merciful and patient and kind. And that's revealed so clearly in Christ. On the cross, suffering for us. So I pray that he there, by your spirit, would be the means through which we more and more die to self and live to and for you. Father, help us to more and more find our delight and our joy and our comfort in Christ. We ask this all in his name. Amen. Amen.